Let's pray. Father, as we consider those last words, why should we gain from Christ's rewards? Lord, we truly cannot give an answer. And yet, there is no end to how thankful we can be because, Lord, you do graciously allow for us to take part in those rewards. And not just sharing of those rewards as strangers, but, Lord, you adopt us into your family. You make us your sons and your daughters. And so for that, we're grateful. We're grateful for his death and his resurrection and for how we, when we believe in him and repent of our sins, are able to be a part of that family. So, Lord, we're grateful for this time where we could worship you through singing, and we pray that you would be honored as we begin to uh, worship you through the preaching of your word. It's your sons, and we pray. Amen. Well, good morning again to all of you. Welcome to San Francisco Bible Church. Uh, especially welcome to all of our friends from, uh, from Los Angeles uh, and SoCal. We're grateful to have you here. I, too, was once a stranger in a foreign land, uh, you know, being a San Franciscan going to L.A. So I can, I can sympathize with you, sort of. Um, but uh, we're glad to have you guys here to uh, worship the Lord together with us this morning. It really is a privilege to have the opportunity to worship the Lord together uh, through singing and now through the preaching of God's Word. It's really just so astounding that we get to know the God of the universe and and that His Word is unchanging just as He is unchanging. And so together we have the opportunity to look at 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13, as we continue our series in the one another's. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 3. Uh, chapter uh, yeah, 3, verses 11 through 13, but we'll read from verse 6 for context. We'll read from verse 6 for context. So verse 6, Paul writes this, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always remember us kindly, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now, we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God because of you? As we, night and day, keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may strengthen your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful again for your word. We're grateful uh, that you instruct us from your word, and so we pray that you would give us open ears, humble hearts to receive the truths that are found in your word. And we pray that, Lord, <clears throat> as a result of our study of your word this morning, that, uh, Lord, we would love you more and that we would love each other more, too. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was attending the Master's College as a student, the motto for our student life department was, love God, love people. And that motto summarizes Matthew twenty-two thirty-four 34 to 40. 
It's certainly a worthy model for a student ministry at a Christian college to have, since God wants us to both love him and love others. Now, while we all understood the importance of our call to love God and love one another, hearing the same thing over and over again naturally led to a little bit of apathy. Right? We would hear that motto, love God, love people, or the, uh, we would hear the uh, importance of community. Right? And it's just kind of like, okay, yes, it's important, but you know, we're kind of tired about hearing uh, you know, love God, love people, or community. Right? And so over time, we began to grow apathetic towards it. Or not that it wasn't important, not that we, uh, not that we failed to, to strive to continue to love God and love people, but it was really easy to kind of put it on the back burner, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, we know, right? It was really easy to acknowledge it mentally, but to practically ignore it uh, as we went about studying for our classes and, and doing the other things that we needed to do. The same thing can be said about our series on the one another's. With each one another that we study, there is a danger of growing apathetic towards God's call for us to live according to the one another's. Right? Even as I say, the one another's. Right? You're just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Right? The one another's. We get it. Right? But we don't outgrow our need for the one another's. Right? Even if you think that you've you studied it before, that you've learned about it before. We never outgrow our need for the one another's. We don't, it's not like we don't need further instruction. When it comes to loving one another, we've already studied Romans 12. Right? We've already studied how we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So do we really need another sermon on loving one another? Well, obviously, by preaching this message this morning, the answer is yes, or otherwise, I don't know what I would preach to you this morning. Um, but uh, this topic of love is so important to Paul that he tells the Thessalonians that they need to increase and abound in love for one another when already in verse 6, he acknowledged that he was encouraged by the good news of their faith and love. And so we're going to explore that more in our text this morning as we observe two reasons why Christians ought to increase and abound in love towards one another. Two reasons why Christians ought to increase and abound in love towards one another. Those reasons are, number one, love towards others defines Christian conduct. Love towards others defines Christian conduct. And number two, love towards others demonstrates Christian conduct maturity. If you don't get those points, don't worry. They're coming back as we get into the body of the sermon. Point number one, love towards others defines Christian conduct. For those of you who may be less familiar with Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, Paul wrote this letter, this first letter to them around AD 51, shortly after he and his team were pushed out of the city by jealous Jews who did not like the fact that the gospel was being preached to and received by Gentiles. Before Paul and his missionary team were pushed out of Thessalonica, they likely had a, had a decent opportunity to minister to these people, uh, at least for about a few months. If you look in Acts 17, you'll see that they were there for at least, they were preaching in the synagogue for at least three weeks, three Saturdays. But 
Um, but we, we see from other passages like 1 Thessalonians 2 and Philippians 4 that it was likely a longer stay that he, was, uh, that, that he had in Thessalonica because he had to work in order to sustain himself. Um, the Philippians sent gifts multiple times to him to support his ministry. Right? Something that you wouldn't do just for three weeks. Right? Money doesn't travel as fast uh, or did not travel as fast back then as it does now. Right, so for the Philippians to constantly send money to him, or at least to send it to him multiple times to support his ministry, he would have had to be there for, uh, for a relatively long time. And it is during that long time that Paul develops a great relationship with the Thessalonians. He praises them constantly, saying in chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, that he and his team give thanks to God always for them in their prayers, remembering without ceasing their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Additionally, in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 1, Paul says that the testimony of the church in their work and, and love caused them to be the model church to all the believers in that surrounding region. And for those of you who call SFBC your home, wouldn't that be cool? If San Francisco Bible Church was so known for our love of God and our love for people that people outside of California, outside of Los Angeles, would know that we have a reputation of being a God-honoring church. People in Washington, people in Idaho, people in South Dakota, when they think San Francisco, they think, oh, San Francisco Bible Church. That would be really cool. That's not the goal of this sermon, really, but it would be really cool to have that as our reputation. And that's the reputation that the Thessalonians had. Their love for one another and their love for other saints was such that everyone in the region of Macedonia and Achaia were like, yeah, Thessalonica, those guys are the model church. And that's very complimentary uh, of the Thessalonians. Now, why is all this background information important? It's important because of who Paul is addressing this letter to. He's not writing to a church that is struggling in the area of loving each other. Right? He's not rebuking them, saying, you guys are really bad at this, you need to do better. Right? He's not doing that. He's writing to a bunch of people who are renowned for their love. They're renowned for their care. Right? They are the model church, and yet he is still encouraging them to grow in love. Let's read verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3 together again. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. As he's reflecting on the good report that he has heard from Timothy about how the church of Thessalonica was doing, Paul offers a a prayer to the Lord. And in this prayer, Paul addresses both God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ with the desire to be able to return at some point down the road to continue to minister to the Thessalonians. He loves them so much that he just can't wait to get back to them. That request that God the Father and Jesus our Lord would direct their way back to the Thessalonians is, is basically a prayer that Paul, uh, that Paul has where he's like, God, clear the way. Clear the way. Get all of the obstacles out of the way so that I can go back to this church. 
or so that I can go back to the church and so that I can minister to them, so that I can care for them, so that I can complete what is lacking in their faith. Right? That's how much love he has for the Thessalonians. That he just can't wait and he's praying to the, to the Lord. Right? But not just the Lord, but to Jesus Christ too. Right? To get back to the Thessalonians. Right? There's a desperation to get back to the Thessalonians because he loves them that much. And, what, and you know, part of that growth that he wants for them uh, in that instruction is not just intellectual growth, but love. He wants them to grow in love. And it's something that God will strengthen them in, but something that the Thessalonians have to do as well. They have to work at that as well. And we get the sense that this is something that God causes, but the Thessalonians are also responsible for, uh, in the words, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. We do recognize that Paul is praying, right? He's praying for God to work, to empower the Thessalonians to love each other. But neither Paul nor the Thessalonians would have understood Paul's prayer as God being solely responsible for the Thessalonians to grow in love. If I can put it this way, the Thessalonians cannot sit back, do a feelings check. What am I feeling right now? And then say, well, you know what? I don't feel like I'm growing in love right now, so I'm not going to love other people, right? God didn't give me the desire to love others, so I'm not going to until he puts it in my heart to love other people, right? That's not what Paul is saying here, right? That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul expects the Thessalonians to use God's power, which is why he's praying for it, to use God's power to grow in love. We see that in the next chapter in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 to 10, where Paul writes this, Now concerning love of the brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brothers who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to excel still more. By urging the Thessalonians to excel still more in their love toward all the brothers, Paul makes it clear that they are the ones who will need to show love to other people using that power that God supplies. And that's not just true in the Thessalonians' case for growing in love. That's true for us as well. We can't just pray, God, help me be more loving, and then that's it. We can't just expect God to do all the work. If we want to grow and change, if we want to be more loving, we have to take practical steps to discipline ourselves for godliness as well, to discipline ourselves to be loving as well. For the Thessalonians, their response to Paul's prayer is not just to be thankful for the fact that he prayed for them, but to figure out, okay, what do I do next? What are my next steps in order to grow in love towards others? Going back to 1 Thessalonians 3.12, Paul specifically asks that God would cause these Thessalonians not just to love each other, but to increase and abound in love. The idea behind these two verbs is that the Lord would cause a massive increase in their love, an increase to the point of overflowing and having more than enough. If you want to think about it this way, if love could be measured in a liquid measuring cup, 
Paul wasn't just praying that the love the Thessalonians would have would get up to the max fill line on that measuring cup. He's not even praying that the love would increase all the way up to the rim of the measuring cup. He's not praying that it would be just so slightly above the measuring cup that if you hit it, some of that love comes out. Just a little bit, a little dribble, or a little spill. That's not how much. If we're talking about how much love needs to come out, we're talking about it's overflowing over the cup. It's continually pouring out. It's cascading down towards the floor, leaving a mess that only bounty can clean up. The love that we are to grow in needs to be that much. It needs to abound and overflow all over the place. And this love that we are to have is, is, not, just to, is, not, is not just love in general, but a love for who? For one another. Right? We are to have a great, abounding, overflowing love for the people in this church, or in the church. And this is not just Paul's teaching. Jesus emphasizes it too. In John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let that sit for a minute. Think about it. The love that we ought to have towards one another is supposed to be the same as the love that Christ has for us, right? Even as I have loved you. It's a, the love that we have for one another is supposed to be the same as the love he has for us. Brothers and sisters, if we are honest with ourselves, can we legitimately say that we love the people in the church as Jesus has loved us? Because the Bible says, because Jesus says that it is through the display of this kind of love within the church that everyone will know that we are his disciples. So does that mark us? Do we love in that way? Or are we a little more hesitant? Do we hold on to our grudges? Do we hold on do we allow for bitterness to to fester in our hearts do we withhold our love from others because we disagree with them we don't like their style we we don't like the the way that they interact with us we don't like uh the way that uh, they prefer certain things to occur in the church right is is that the way that we love well yeah but as we look at what we, are, what we see here in the scriptures, right? we have no wiggle room. We have no wiggle room. Christ is calling us to a higher standard of love than we have for ourselves. Right? For us, it's more just kind of like, well, as long as I'm not actively feuding with anybody in the church and it doesn't show up in public, we're good. Right? But Christ's call for us, Christ's standard for us in our love for one another is so much higher than ours where it's, you have to match it. You have to match it. It has to look the same. We will fail in it. Right? That's where his grace comes in. But that's the high standard of love that we ought to aspire to. 
Right? And that's the kind of love that we ought to try to have. If you need a clearer idea of what that kind of love ought to look like, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 4-8 helps us see what God-glorifying love looks like. In 1 Corinthians 13... Verse 4, he writes this, Love is patient. Love is kind. Is not jealous. Does not brag. Is not puffed up. It does not act unbecomingly. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. As we see more of what perfect love looks like, according to the scriptures, you'll notice that love is not linked to our emotions. Love is not linked to our emotions. Now, for those of you who are uh, a little more romantically inclined um, or maybe a little more feelings-oriented, this idea that, that love is not linked to our emotions might be really difficult to wrap our minds around. But notice that the love in 1 Corinthians 13, it's not primarily an emotion. It is something that we show others uh, or it's, sorry, it's not something that we show others when we feel like it, or if they are deserving of it. Right? The love that we show is an action. It's something that we display towards others. There is no direct connection between the action of love that we show to other people to the feelings that we feel. We see this in God the Father and uh, his love for us. Right? Think about it. Think about yourself, just yourself. Right? Think about how many times you sin and how easy it is for you to fall into sin. Right? All it really takes right, when you wake up in the morning is for one piece of bad news to come across your phone. and Your day starts off rotten. Right? Or maybe you are able to get past doom scrolling on your phone in the morning. You're able to get out of bed, but something is in your way as you're trying to get ready for work or school. You want to take a hot shower, but there's no hot water. Oh, terrible, right? What a shocking way to wake up. And you're cursing in your mind. Or let's let's, let's even take take it out of our routine getting ready. You're on your way to work, you're driving, someone cuts you off, and bam, there goes that sin right in your heart, right? This is right there in your heart, right in your mind, maybe in your mouth too. It's so easy for us to sin, right? It's so easy for us to sin. Can you imagine how mad God would be with you because of your sin? Because of how many times you sin? How often you sin? Right? He has every reason to be mad with us, or mad at us, sorry, because of all the sin that we do. He has every reason to be mad at us. And yet, and yet, even before time began, He chose, he chose to set his love on us. He chose to love us. He chose to save us. That's different than our concept of love, right? Because our concept of love is, I will show you love if you deserve it, or if I feel like it. 
God, despite the fact that we do sin against him constantly, chooses to set his love on us. There isn't a direct connection between the action of love and the feelings that we feel. It's a choice. And that means, regardless of what you feel or how you feel towards someone, a God-honoring love ought to have the same characteristics that are listed here in 1 Corinthians 13. So, returning to the question that we asked about the quality of our love towards others. Do we love each other as our Lord Jesus Christ has loved us? No. Sadly, none of us do. And for this reason, even if we're kind of good at showing love towards other people, we can still grow more. We still have work to do. We're not complete in this area. We still have plenty, plenty of room to grow in terms of graciousness and genuine love that we show towards others, uh, towards, towards those who are new. Right? We're pretty good at that. But also to those who continue to uh, be a part of our fellowship. And we're not done growing yet. And so we must all, brothers and sisters, excel still more. We've historically done really well in greeting new visitors. Like a lot of times we hear that we have a reputation for being warm and friendly. And that's good. Right? That's good. We should be warm and friendly. But brothers and sisters, we have to do a little bit better. Okay? We, can excel, we can excel still more. It shouldn't be with the first two weeks we're warm and friendly, and then after that, we forget about them, right? It shouldn't be like that. That's kind of what we do, but that's okay. We can excel still more. Right? Let's grow in this area together. Let's not let people slip through the cracks. Let's not forget about them. Right? Let's excel still more. Right? We can, uh, let us consider how we can increase our love, increase our hospitality, increase our generosity to the people who come into our midst so that if they leave our fellowship or if they go on to another church, they can at least say that when they were here, they were loved. Right? That's what we want to be able to, uh, to show other people. The love that we are to increase and abound in is, however, not limited to love towards people in the church. There's more people to consider as well, as we see back in 1 Thessalonians 3.12. The love that is supposed to uh, increase and abound in our lives is also extended towards those who are outside the church. Now, that might sound a little unusual to hear, but there are other passages in the New Testament that also teach that we ought to have a love for those who are outside the church. For example, in Galatians 6.10, Paul encourages the Galatians to use the time and opportunities that we have been given by God to do good to all people. He says all people, and then he has that little little emphasis, right? And especially to those who are of the household of faith. We should do well in loving each other in the church, right? But we should also do good to all people, right? All people. It's undeniable that Paul wants us to demonstrate love and care towards people who are outside of our community as well. When Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25, he describes the Lord's slave. He gives some characteristics of the Lord's servants, what we are to be like. 
And among those things, right, there's some pretty good qualities up there, right? Not being quarrelsome, being patient when wrong, um, and being uh, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Right? Those are some good things. But, right, in number two, but be kind to all. Right? This should be a marker for us. This should be a marker for us. Why? Because of the possibility that our behavior may be a testimony to other people so that when we have a chance to talk to them right, and give a reason for why our lives are different, we can point them to the gospel. And when we model for them the power of the gospel as it changes our lives, maybe they look at us and they say, wow, there really is something to this Christianity. Right? This is not just talk. This is not just someone who, who holds a Bible and yells at a bunch of people and, and uh, goes to church on Sunday, but it actually seems to have changed their lives. Right? That's what we want to show people, that the gospel really can change lives. One of the best ways that we can make the, the gospel believable is to make sure that the gospel truths that we live out are consistent with the gospel truths that we proclaim. Right? That's, the best, that's one of the best ways we can make the gospel believable to other people. To make sure that the gospel truths that we live out are consistent with the gospel truths we proclaim. Nobody is going to get saved by us proving that, that geology proves that the earth is 6,000 years old. Nobody is going to get saved. Okay, maybe nobody's a little strong. right? But very few people are going to get saved by, by looking at the historical record and, and proving that there are no inaccuracies when it comes to what the Bible says and what history says. But if you prove in the way that you live your life that the gospel really does have power to change lives, that is almost everything. And when we hear testimonies from people who are getting baptized, or many of them are church kids, why is it sometimes that they have a hard time believing the gospel, even though they've been raised with the gospel all their lives? Right? For some of them, we have CBM camp coming up this, this week. Right? And, and for many of the campers that we've had a chance to minister to over the years, a lot of it is just because they just think that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Where does that start, though? Right? Who's the biggest hypocrite that they're going to see? Mom and dad. Right? Mom and dad. Or maybe it's their Sunday school teachers. Maybe it's their youth sponsors. Right? If we don't make the Bible believable in the way that we live our lives, we lose our testimony. We absolutely lose our testimony. If you want people to see the goodness of the gospel, you have to show them that the gospel is good. Make it believable by living it out. And that's how Paul and his missionary team lived their lives. He reminds them at the very end of verse 12 that the love that they are to increase and abound in should be for one another, and it is similar to how they love the Thessalonians. Right? He says here, just as we also do for you. 
We ought to live in such a way that everyone who interacts with us will, as Jesus says, know that we are his disciples. The way that we demonstrate our love for God by increasing and abounding in our love is truly a defining characteristic of who are truly Christ's disciples. We can still be working, right? We're all in progress. I'm still in progress when it comes to, to growing in love. We're all still in progress, but if our love is absent, if it's completely absent, and we really just don't love anyone except for ourselves, if we don't love anyone, if we don't love God's people, there is a reason, a legitimate reason, to question whether we love God at all. If we do not love God's people, there is a reason for us to wonder whether we love God at all. Because if we love God, we're going to love his people. And that leads us to the second reason why Christians ought to increase and abound in our love towards one another. And that is love towards others demonstrates Christian maturity. Love towards others demonstrates Christian maturity. Verse 13. So that he may strengthen your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So here in verse 13, we see the reason why Paul prays that the Thessalonians, whom we've already established are known for their love, would increase and abound in their love. Right? This is a purpose statement. So that, right? purpose statement. Paul prays this prayer for them so the Lord would grow them in their faith so that they may become more mature. When Paul asks, for the Lord Jesus Christ to strengthen their hearts, to strengthen them and make them blameless in holiness. He is asking our Lord to help us in the process of becoming holy. In the process of becoming holy. Now, normally, we tend to think of the process of growing in holiness as a task-oriented thing. For example, if I were to challenge you to grow more in your Christian life. And I kind of just left it at that. Right? I just say, grow in your, in your Christian walk. What would you think of? For some of us, for some of us, our thoughts would probably immediately turn to our spiritual disciplines. Right? How can I be more consistent with my Bible reading? How can I grow in my prayer life? How can I serve in the church more? But maybe instead of thinking about spiritual disciplines, you're thinking about, oh, how can I grow in victory over certain sins? How can I I stop being angry? Or how can I have more self-control in my battle against lust? How can I be more generous instead of selfish? Both these thoughts are, are good. Right? Focus on spiritual disciplines or, or putting off sin are, are all a part of growing to be like Christ. But sometimes we, uh, but something we sometimes fail to recognize in our quest to grow is that God wants more than simple attitude change and behavior modification. He wants more than that for us. He wants our hearts. He wants our worship. In Matthew 15, Jesus quotes Isaiah in his evaluation of the Pharisees when he says, You hypocrites, 
Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. You see, neither in the Old Testament nor the New Testament was lip service to God ever acceptable. God has, you know, while God has given people commands to follow, their ability to fulfill the commands through their own discipline and through their own strength was never the main point. It was never the main point. And that's why we also see Jesus having so much compassion on the rich young ruler. Because that's what he thought. When the rich young ruler looked at his own life, looked at all the commandments, he said, I've kept all these commandments from my youth. It's like, really? You've kept all the commandments from your youth. Right? Even the one of honor your father and mother. Right? You've never once said, like, Mom, why are you doing that? Right? Or, Dad, get out of my room. Right? You've never shown your parents attitude ever? Really? You've kept all of the commandments? Or you can see why Jesus has so much compassion on this poor, rich, young ruler. He's so deluded in his, his own thinking of himself, right? his own righteousness, that he cannot even see that he fails to keep the law of the Lord. You see the commandments, right? The many hundreds of commandments that are found in the Old Testament were not supposed to be a checklist of all the things that we can accomplish on our own. Right? They're meant to show us the precision of the holiness of God, the exacting nature of the holiness of God. And as sinful people, as we look at all the commandments, we shouldn't look at that and say, I can do that. I can keep all of these. Right? We shouldn't look at it that in, in that way. But as we look at all those commandments, we should realize, oh boy, I'm in big trouble. I am in serious trouble. And that is where the grace of God comes in, right? Because the grace of God covers over all of those deficiencies. Right? God shows us the absolute standard of his holiness to help us realize we need help. Right? We need help. And as a result, there always needed to be a system where God's people could try and receive forgiveness for their sins. And that's why, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was there. Right? You sacrifice in order to cover over sin. Now, sacrifices did help cover over the people's sins, but there were times, or there were times where when they were sacrificing, it's just going through the motions. It's just because, well, I need to cover my sins. And God said, this is the way I'm going to do it, or how I should do it, so I'm going to do it. And this got them in trouble. This got them in trouble with God, too. Technically speaking, they were fulfilling the letter of the law. They were doing the sacrifices. But they still got in trouble. Why? Because they never really meant it. They're doing the sacrifices. They're going through the motions. But they never really meant it. They never really meant that they were sorry. They never really meant that they were truly repentant. They never really meant that they loved God. In Isaiah 1, 11 through 15, God is fed up with the people's worthless sacrifices to him because he knows that the people are just sacrificing to him because he calls them to do it. They don't actually love him. 
He says that their sacrifices are worthless. They're repulsive. Pretty much all they want to do when they're sacrificing to God is to get them off their back. And oh, by the way, now that you're off my back, God, can you bless me? That's, that's all they wanted. Right? Stop being mad at me. I did what you want. Now, can you bless me too? Right? That sounds like a teenager, doesn't it? Right, to their parents? Why are you mad at me? Stop being mad at me. I did the chores. Right? I, got the, I got the dishes done eventually. I don't know why you're so mad. By the way, can I get 20 bucks? Right? It's so similar. It's so similar. They wanted God off their back and they just wanted him to bless them. But that's not what God wants. As we've seen in Deuteronomy 6 and in Matthew 22, what matters most to God is not our ability to be outwardly obedient. What God wants is for us to love him with the entirety of our beings, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. Can we say that we love him like that? Can we say that we we love him like that? On our own, we can't. But by His grace and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we definitely can. We definitely can. Paul prays that the Lord Jesus Christ would cause us to increase and abound in love so that He may strengthen our hearts blameless in holiness. Now, while changing our behavior from unrighteous to righteous is important, our behavior modification will not provide the proof that we are truly growing in our Christian lives. Right? Anyone could put on a front of holiness. And to truly love God from the heart, though, it's much more difficult to fake that. Because if we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind, it will naturally lead us to loving other people. Right? And not only loving other people, but loving them as we love ourselves. And by the way, that's not, that's not permission for you to think, how would I like to be loved? I'm going to love other people the way I like to be loved. Right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. Or that's not what Paul is saying here either. But it's to consider them as more important than yourself. And that's what it, that loving others as yourself means. When we love God with all that we are, and that love leads us to love others, right? that will naturally lead to a joyful willingness, a joyful eagerness to leave sin behind and to put on righteous thinking, to put on righteous speech, to put, right, put on righteous conduct. You, you cannot truly have one without the other. When we have genuine love for others, we become more like Christ. And this is not just something that is found in 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul also writes in Romans 13, 8 to 14, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not work evil against a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let us walk properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. In Romans 13, Paul explicitly connects the love that we ought to have towards other people with fulfilling the law. Not just fulfilling the law, but also in living in such a way that pleases Christ. In doing so, Paul is not saying that we earn our holiness through our love and good work towards other people. Rather, Paul makes the point that love for God naturally leads to a desire to please him, to obey him. And that's most evidenced in how we love other people and how we conduct ourselves when we're around other people. Brothers and sisters, if you really want an accurate read on where your relationship with God is at, don't look to how faithful you are at attending church on Sunday or in the middle of the week. Don't look to how many ministries you're juggling. Don't look to how many chapters of your Bible that you're reading each day. Don't look to how long you can pray and sound good while doing it. Don't look to how many hours of community service that you've put in or how much food or money that you've given away to the poor. Instead, examine how well you love God and see if the reason that you do all those things is because you love him. Or whether you're just doing these Christian things because it's good, it makes you feel good. Or someone told us that that's what Christians ought to do. The measure of how we are doing, how we are growing, is not in activity. It's in love. It's in love for the Lord. And how that love for the Lord then influences the activities. In 1 John 4, 7 through 8, the Apostle John writes this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You see, the only reason why we are even able to love one another, even if it is imperfect, is because love is from God. If we are genuinely his children, we are all going to mimic the love that he has for us in our interactions as well. Right? It's kind of like kids when they mimic dad or mom. Why do they do that? Or why do they want to be like you, parents, when they grow up? It's because they love you. If we love God, we should want to mimic him. We should want to put on his character. We should want to show that to other people. If we are his children, we should want to mimic dad. Therefore, again, the most accurate measure of whether we are truly growing in our relationship with God is not how much you know. It's how much you love God and how much that love for God influences everything else. If we love one another... The love that we put on display towards others is evidence that we, not just, that we not only know him intellectually, but that we have a relationship with him as well. 
Our love for one another is evidence that God really is our Father. That's the DNA test, the paternity test that proves that we are His. Is our love for one another. Because when we love Him, when we truly love Him, that love for Him motivates us to act and to deal with sin, not just talk about dealing with sin. We can all talk a big game when it comes to dealing with sin, right? We can all say, yeah, I want to change. I want to grow. I want to be more holy. We can talk the talk. But to live it out, right? And to take the steps to live it out, right? That's the next step. That demonstrates maturity. If we do not have love for one another, then the selfish motives of our heart, whatever they may be, will lead to quarrels and conflicts in our lives as well. That's what we see in James Four, as you can see on the slide, James sources the conflicts and the quarrels that we have to us, to our selfish motives in our hearts. This is who we are. As sinners, this is who we are. People who have conflict with other people because we want to fulfill what we want. Right? We lust and we do not have, so we murder. We are envious and we cannot obtain, so we fight and we quarrel. We all have all these bad motives. This is who we are. And this is kind of the encouraging part, too. It doesn't sound encouraging, right? <laughs> you all are a bunch of selfish, angry people. Right? That's not encouraging exactly, right? but it is encouraging in the sense that you're not alone. You're not alone. Right? We all wrestle with these things. Right? We all have quarrels and conflicts. We all fight against each other. We're not alone. Christians all the way back into the, in, in New Testament times were also wrestling with this too. And I can assure you that every single Christian who is worshiping the Lord on this Sunday, they have their struggles in this area as well in one form or the other. But instead of being discouraged, we need to recognize that the root of our problem is our selfish pride that leads us to do what comes to us all too naturally, to love ourselves more than we love others. We're supposed to love others as we love ourselves, but we tend to love ourselves more than we love others. Now, you might be thinking, wait a second, that's not encouraging. That makes me even more discouraged. Well, let me offer you this hope. While it might seem as if we will never have victory over our selfish pride that leads us to have a lack of love for others, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave three days later so that all who believe can have even those sins forgiven too. Every single sin can be forgiven. And that means that you can have victory over sin. He will help you in this fight. And so, when it comes down to the question of obedience, whether we will try to grow in this area, it's not an issue of whether you can do it. It's an issue of whether you will do it. Right? You can do it. God empowers you to do it. He gives you the ability to do it. So, brothers and sisters, will you do it? Will you do it? Because he gives you all the grace that you need, all the grace that you need to be able to 
glorify him in every circumstance. 2 Corinthians 9.8. He gives you all the grace that you need, all the sufficient grace for every good work that you need. So will you do it? And that's the reality that we have to consider. He can give us that. He already has. So we are to fight. And that's why Paul prays. Paul prays that Christ will sanctify the Thessalonians and that he will sanctify us, or to make us holy. And he's actually praying Jesus' own words back to Jesus. Jesus, help them be sanctified just as you prayed. And that work of growing in holiness is not something that will be completely realized here in our lifetimes. Right? But it'll be most apparent during the second coming of Christ. Right? So whether we are glorified because we died and, and we went to, to heaven and we're sinless then, or whether we've lasted to the point of the rapture, and then we meet up with, with Christ in the air with all the saints, at any point, at either of those points, we're going to be made righteous. We're going to be made holy. Right? We will eventually be able to do this perfectly. Right now, it's going to be imperfect, but eventually we will be able to do it perfectly. Now, Paul didn't know when Christ was going to return, but he points to the second coming of Christ as a reference point of hope. Christ is for sure coming again. And at that point, we will be complete. Right? That's why Paul does say in Philippians, right, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Right? That's his confidence, because he knows who promised that. He knows the one who empowers that. So either way, we can have hope. No matter how much we might struggle with spiritual immaturity now in this life, that we will eventually be able to grow in our love for one another perfectly when God makes us perfectly like Christ. Now, our love will often fail. We will have elements of immaturity in it, and that can cause us to be frustrated. It can cause us to fear, but do not fear, because God will not abandon you. He will not abandon his goal of making you like his son because he loves you, and he wants to give you his best. And it just so happens that his best is himself. As a result, we can find comfort even when our love is not as it should be right? because he is going to be faithful to complete it. So, fellow Christians, even if we are doing a good job in loving others, don't grow complacent. Don't grow complacent. Excel still more. And if you know, right, you just know yourself, if you know that you need to grow in this area, Pick a few areas in your life where you can slowly begin to make changes so that you may glorify God as you strive to grow in loving others as God in Christ has loved us. As simple as the motto, love God, love people, may be, Jesus really did know what he was talking about when he said that it was upon these two commands that the law and the prophets depend. We may grow tired of hearing love God, love people over time. But these words are not throwaway words that are only suited for church t-shirts and church mottos. If we see them as a helpful summary of how God wants us to live, Lord willing, we will be faithful witnesses of the love that God has first shown us so that others may also come to know the love of Christ towards them. This morning, 
we explored two reasons why Christians ought to increase and abound in love towards one another. Love towards one another defines Christian conduct, but it also demonstrates Christian maturity. You know, if we're all honest with ourselves, we're going to recognize that none of us have arrived yet when it comes to loving other people like Christ has loved us. And if that's the case, let us, in prayerful dependence upon the Lord, humble ourselves. Let us ask God for more grace, and let us, using the grace that he provides, strive to grow more in love. He surely will give us all of the grace that we need in order to please him. When we fail, let's confess our sin to the Lord and to the people that we've sinned against. And let us, through the strength and grace God gives, strive to grow in love of God more so that we can love ourselves less and love others more. Some application questions that we can consider for this upcoming week are, number one, how can we seek to love one another better so that other people will know that we are Jesus' disciples? How can we seek to love one another better so that other people will know that we are Jesus' disciples? Number two, what are specific areas of loving one another that you can grow in individually? What are some areas of loving one another that we can improve on in the church? Number three, who are the people in your life that you need to be more loving towards? Have you neglected loving them? Or sorry, how have you neglected loving them? And how can you specifically strive to begin showing them love? And these application questions are pretty personal, a little pointed. But if we want to really make those steps to grow in love, we can't just walk away from the sermon thinking, okay, I'm going to pray that God will help me grow in love. And then not think about how we grow in love, right? Or who we ought to show love towards. And so even though it's a little more personal, it gets in your kitchen and makes a mess, right? These are definitely some things to consider as uh, we meditate on the truths that we've heard this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for the love that you've shown us. It is because you've shown us love that we know how to love other people. And so we pray, Lord, that loving other people isn't just something that we do because, well, we have to or uh, because that's what we ought to do, but we pray that we would want to do it because we love you ultimately. Lord, we want to be more like Jesus. We want to lay aside every encumbrance, every sin that stumbles us because we just want more of Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us recognize these things that are in our lives that that prevent us from becoming more like Christ, that prevent us from loving you as we ought to. And we pray that, Lord, you would help us, as we identify, identify these things, be able to deal with them biblically so that, Lord, we can love you with all of our heart, all of our mind, with all of our soul. We ask you all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.